0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com.
1: From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. Today, Grammy and Oscar-winning music producer Mark Ronson. He's known for his party hits, pop songs, and soulful arrangements, producing for stars like Amy Winehouse, Lady Gaga, and Adele. His latest project is Barbie the album, as well as the soundtrack for the film. Also, do you remember the first time you saw a black model on the cover of a magazine or walked down a runway? Chances are our guest Beth Ann Hardison had something to do with it. She entered the fashion world in the late 60s as a model, before becoming one of the first black women to own a modeling agency.
2: I come along skinny, boy-like, not being really truly androgynous, but in a way could be, you know, because I wasn't trying to have makeup on and have hair pressed and all that. A new documentary chronicles Hardison's life and
3: career. It's titled Invisible Beauty. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. So download the Redfin app to get started today.
1: This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. If you've seen the most popular movie of the year this summer, there is no denying it. You know this tune.
4: When I wake up in my own pink world, I get up out of bed and wave to my homegirls. Hey, Bobby so cool all dolled up just playing chess by the pool
1: it's from the fantasy comedy film Barbie which follows Ken and Barbie as they leave Barbieland and enter the real world the film was directed by Greta Gerwig and co-written by Gerwig and Noah Baumbach Gerwig tapped Grammy and Oscar winning music producer Mark Ronson to produce the soundtrack He's known for his party hits, pop songs, and soulful arrangements, producing for stars like Amy Winehouse, Lady Gaga, Adele, and Bruno Mars. But believe it or not, even with all of his credentials, Ronson lost a lot of sleep over Gerwig's request. Even before Barbie came out, critics were forecasting that it was destined to be one of the highest-grossing films to date. It was also the first time Ronson had created a soundtrack of this scope and size. What followed was a year of conceptualizing, producing, and composing songs for the film with artists like Nicki Minaj, Sam Smith, Billie Eilish, Dua Lipa, and Pink Panthers. Mark Ronson is an English-American DJ, record producer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist. He's won seven Grammy Awards for various works, including Amy Winehouse's Back to Black and Uptown Funk with Bruno Mars. His song Shallow for the movie A Star is Born won an Oscar and a Golden Globe Award for Best Original Song, as well as a Grammy. Ronson is the executive producer of Barbie the Album, which he wrote and produced along with music producer Andrew Wyatt. Together, they composed the Barbie film score. Mark Ronson, welcome back to Fresh Air. Hi there. One of the first songs you worked on for this soundtrack is I'm Just Ken sung by Ryan Gosling who plays Ken. Let's listen.
5: Doesn't seem to matter what I do. I'm always number two. No one knows how hard I tried. Oh, oh I I have feelings that I can't explain. They're driving me insane. All my life been so polite, but I'll sleep alone tonight. Cause I'm just kin, anywhere else i be take. Is it my destiny to live and die, a life of blood fragility? I'm just
1: kin. That was I'm Just Kin from the Barbie movie soundtrack. Mark, you wrote these lyrics, but you're not usually a a lyrics guy, right?
6: I'm not. You know, when you're working with different artists as a producer, your job is always just to fill any hole that's needed. But I work with a lot of brilliant lyricists, people like Amy Winehouse, obviously, or Adele and Lady Gaga. And sometimes you're just there to provide the music, to bounce ideas, to be an editor, just to do the arrangements sometimes. But I love coming up with a lyric or helping someone when they're like a little block to fill fill a hole here and there, but that's not really the thing that I start with. But I was so inspired by this script and and Greta and her vision. I just I love the whole message of it. I love the whole idea of it. Um, obviously, Barbie's story is is so wonderful, and then Ken's story that's going on on the side about this guy like and maybe it was because i knew ryan gosling was playing it so i had the advantage of picturing him saying every line as i'm reading this script but he just got his hooks in me that character you know and and uh he's dopey but you root for him and you know all he wants is just for this person to feel the same way about him that he feels about her and it's never gonna happen so um, I, I just, I had this line, I I think I was walking to the studio one day, my studio in, in, in Manhattan, and I just, I'm just Ken, anywhere else I'd be a 10. It just came to me and I was like, that's kind of sounds like something to start a chorus from, you know, I wasn't even thinking at that point, I'm going to write this song by myself or, or 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 write the lyrics. And I got to the piano and... I, I just was working, I found the chords and a melody that I that I thought was good that I, all you can ever tell is is it is it making you excited when you're in the studio, you know, and and I sent off the demo to um to Greta and um she just wrote back so enthusiastically.
1: I agree with you about Ken's storyline in particular. It was a surprise for me. Of course, we know that Ken would be a part of the movie, but the richness and the, the layering of his character. And the, this song in particular adds another dimension to it. I, I, When I was in the movie theater watching it and the line, Blonde Fragility, came up, it was like, oh, wait, these lyrics are actually kind of deep. And you came up with that lyric as well.
6: Yeah, I, that's all I had when I... Um when i was writing the chorus it was uh i'm just can't anywhere else i'd be a 10 and i kind of mumbled the rest and da 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 all my i think it was all my blonde fragility was the original lyric but i kind of mumbled that lyric as well because it was like maybe taking a bit too much license to like i just met greta and noah i didn't want them to think like I'm trying to be the, provide the funny or the thing. Like, you guys are the genius writers. Like, let me just give you a song. But she was like, are you mumbling? Is there something about blonde fragility? And, you know, of <laughs> course, it was a nod to white fragility, the book, like everything. And I, but I just, it just felt right. And then, um, and then we wrote the rest of the chorus, Andrew and I, together.
1: Gosling definitely brought your lyrics to life. And I, I read that when you were in the studio with Bradley Cooper for the song Shallow for Stars Born, um, you warmed him up to sing with pop tunes. What did you do with Ryan Gosling in the studio?
6: You know, it's awkward being with anyone in the studio for the very first time because it's a vulnerable place. Um and, you know, you're about to go on this, embark on this thing, and you're feeling each other out, and as a producer, you're you're, you're seeing what somebody's, you know, vocal ranges and their limits, and you always want to push them, but then not push too far, because if you're pushing somewhere, a place, a range they don't have, then you can shatter their confidence, and then the whole session's like a, a wash, so... And then and then add to the fact that Ryan is, you know, a giant movie star and he's, he's coming in here and he's like one hour off from shooting this giant film and I came into the studio and we just talked for a little while and 15 minutes and we we're like, okay, should we try this? And in the beginning, because Andrew sung on the demo and he has such an amazing range, I just thought, okay, let me make this a little bit easier for Ryan. We're going to lower it a key or two and just start there. And then as Ryan just started to get warm up, I was like, okay, we could kind of bump this up another key. Oh, now we can bump it up. And now we're in the original key. And he's just giving such this wonderful vocal performance. And also because he's just such an incredible actor, he's imbuing all these words with even a different... Context and emotion, and than, than what Andrew and I had even uh, been able to to add to it, because he did, he is Ken, and he was almost acting out the song as he was singing in a way that was like, oh, I don't know if if that's true, but it felt like he was inhabiting the song, which was really wonderful, and and I could hear it in what was coming back through the speaker.
1: And you mentioned that Greta turned it into an entire scene in the movie. Uh, with Gosling performing like this choreographed dance routine with the other Kins. Um As a musical producer, that sounds like an exciting challenge because it's not just a song. I mean, there are lots of places that we're going in it. Were you on the set for the performance of it? Were you able to to see it all put together?
6: I wasn't able to be there on the set, but, but um, I, I got to see some videos and what happened was we wrote the whole song and then, Greta's like I'm adding this scene where they're going to be in this white space having this incredible dance off, and uh, you know that's one of the high points of the movie, certainly visually. And we hadn't written something, and she was like, basically, I need you to take take it up. I was like, and the song's already pretty like to the hill, and she's like, basically, I need to go to eleven. So they were getting back into the edit suite, and it was obvious that this is a, a three minute song that now inhabits a ten minute part of the movie, the whole battle, everything, and they're just looping little parts of the song and it's repetitive. I'm like, well, can you just give us the scene and can we essentially try and score this scene? You know, Andrew and I have never scored a film before, but I think what we are doing by turning Ken, this three-minute song, into a 10-minute scene in the film, where are sort of, I guess, proving to Greta in some ways that, that we could score and that's how right. she started to give us more scenes and stuff to work on.
1: Our guest is Grammy Award-winning music producer Mark Ronson. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air
6: Weekend. On NPR's Throughline, We cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe.
4: Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom-scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Today, I'm talking with DJ, record producer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist Mark Ronson. He's won seven Grammy Awards for various works, including Amy Winehouse's Back to Black and Uptown Funk with Bruno Mars. His song, Shallow, for the movie A Star is Born, won an Oscar and a Golden Globe Award for Best Original Song, as well as a Grammy. His latest work is as executive producer of the soundtrack for Barbie, the summer hit directed by Greta Gerwig and written by Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. Ronson also composed the film Score with Andrew Wyatt. Okay, so when Greta Gerwig contacted you, you were basically like, I'm a huge fan, of course I'm on board, which kind of made me surprised when I read that it wasn't exactly a slam dunk that you'd get every artist you wanted for this soundtrack. You had to actually do some maneuvering, calling up friends and friends of friends.
6: I think a lot of people definitely just came to the table on the basis of Greta and the films that she's made before. And, you know, certainly in the case of Billie Eilish and Pink Panthers, that was the case. Some people came because Barbie was important to them and figured in their lives. And that was people like Carol G., Then what we had to do was show everybody a piece of the film. And what we did was, you know, because this is still early on, Greta was still editing the film. We would show maybe 20 minutes of the film, just different scenes enough so people could get the sense of the film and the tone and and the arc. And then Greta and I had spent time before deciding... Where we would love a Sam Smith song to go, where we would love a Pink Panther song to go, and get to show them specifically the scene, and that's what's so great about a lot of the the songs that people wrote, because they seem so bespoke. The way that Charlie wrote "Speed Drive" for for you know a chase scene slash through Mattel offices slash car chase that. I I think that what's great is that sometimes you listen to it and you're like, what came first, the songs or the film? It has this nice interwoven thing. Every artist took what they saw, took the conversation with Greta and just turned it into, you know, everyone ran with it and, and did something different.
1: The song, What Was I Made For?, sung by Billie Eilish. I think director Greta Gerwig calls it the glittery pink heart at the center of the film. It really does get to the heart of Barbie's predicament, which is basically what happens when the world turns against you. Let's listen. What Was I Made For, written by Billy and Phineas Eilish. And it is such an important storytelling device um, in this movie, Mark. Is it true that Billy and Phineas wrote it within, like, 24 hours?
6: I think they could have. I know that, you know, we had had this text chain going, and I know they saw the film, and I think um, Billy texted maybe a day or two later, like, Wrote something with a smiley face, like such an understated thing for just this, you know, wonderful song that she was about to send to us.
1: What was your reaction when you first heard it?
6: Greta and I, I think we got it at the same time, like a text thread or something. And I think we just immediately called each other like, what is this song is just insane. I was basically like, what is wrong with these kids? Why are they so good? They're so young. Like, you know, like (laughs) this, you know, especially when it got to that lyric, like, um it's not what he's made for like about like the way that it sort of applies to the film and could be applied to many things i like get you know and so we andrew and i had been working on a lot of pieces for the score for the more emotional moments and some of them oddly enough weren't really that dissimilar to to what billy and Phineas's song were so there were moments when we were like wow, let's take this song and make their song this thread that we weave through the film. And so we we had been trying to come up with something for a while, some chords and some score. And we're like, let's just find a way to combine these two ideas and concepts, the Billy and Phineas song mixed with what we'd already been doing. Can you briefly
1: describe the differences between writing a song and creating a musical score? Because this was part of this project that was different and new for you.
6: So different. And, you know, a lot of my instincts as a, as a songwriter, when you're making a pop song, you're constantly thinking of, of hooks and melodies and ear candy and secondary hooks and tertiary hooks and stuff like that. And really, score. sometimes, of course, you want to have memorable melodies and things, but you really also need to get out the way. You can't be a distraction. You're there to support the emotional undertow of the film at that moment, especially when there's there's dialogue or an important scene going on. And, you know, I love film scores so much.
1: I want to play a piece from the score. It's called Mattel, which uh, played every time there was a scene with executives at Mattel. Let's listen. <laughs> a sucker for a good score. <laughs> that uh, was the song Mattel from Barbie the Score. Mark, for those who haven't seen the movie, um, all of the Mattel executives are men, and it feels apt that the music harkens kind of to those green little army men that boys used to play with. It's very military in its sound. What was the process for finding that kind of... Um, layering that strengthens the storyline without maybe being too on the nose with it.
6: Yeah, I think we started off, as you would say, a little bit on the nose. And and we had almost scored metal in this more like Death Star, Star Wars, just the more obvious <laughs> way that it would be to score sort of ominous. And, and then Noah had such a great idea and he was like, can you give them sort of a little bit more of like this false nobility, but they're still kind of bumbling idiots? And so we thought of turning the string motif from the Dua Lipa song, which is a motif that comes back and, you know, throughout the movie, the the strings that go ding, 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 mm-hmm. ding, 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 ding. Like, wow, what if we put that on this marching band but it sounds a bit more like a high school marching band or you know we're obviously always so uh college university marching bands like i think it's grambling state and all the ones and like beyonce uses that stuff and lose yourself and it's so impactful and you know just me because having my background as a hip-hop dj you know those those kind of sounds and stuff i'm always thinking okay we're doing a score but i can't help but those influences are gonna creep in
1: before this opportunity, was it an aspiration for you to to score a film?
6: I, I'm sure it was. You know, I, I don't think it was something that I would have ever put my hand up and, and say, like, I, I'd like to score Barbie. You know, I think the way that it unfolded was so... Lucky, listen, I mean, this is one of now one of the biggest films of all time. I don't know if anybody at the very top of this thing would have been like, yeah, let's just risk it all on some guys that have never scored a film before. I think that we sort of <laughs> proved ourselves probably along the way enough. Um, but I don't know you if know, we'll score another film because we we're so spoiled. I mean, I, that's a crazy thing to say, but we were so inspired on this. Let's just say that.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, when I'm hearing you, I'm also hearing something else like it feels so good. Good and exhilarating and maybe, like, life-affirming to be kind of new at something again. Like, to use the skills you already have to, like, then do something even bigger and more expansive with other parts that, like, you're contributing your part to.
6: Oh, um, I that's the best. I love that. Like, if I ever felt like I was going to stop learning, that's the other thing. Like, you know, during the film, even... As crazy as our schedule was, I started taking piano lessons again. I started taking music theory lessons again. I was like, I want to be able to know exactly what the, the orchestra notation is to these things. I don't want to just be, you know, kind of coasting by on my ear. Like, so, yes, and now I'm really going to, you know, now I'm actually really going deep into, like, back to school. But I, I love that. I love being, A, the excitement of learning something new. B, the humbling of it. It's just, it's it's the best.
1: Mark, your father worked in the music business. Your stepfather was a member of Foreigner. And your mother is a writer and a jewelry designer. How do you feel about the term Nepo Baby? And do you consider yourself to be one?
6: I think by the very definition of the term, yes, of course, I'm a Nepo Baby. You know, my stepdad, um, you know, he's a musician. He had recording equipment around the house. I got to be inside recording studios from such a young age where i realized like these were my happy places i loved the equipment i loved all the faders i just i think i felt like naughty in a way being up to like because you know they would let me stay up kind of late i'd you know stay up be at midnight in the studio and realize like oh wait that's when everybody really starts to come to life and when you know because it's just, they all like to party back then in those days as well so i think that Yes, of course, the advantages that came from, you know, having having my stepdad be in music, and um, I'm sure those helped. I think that when I decided that, um, you know, I guess when I started off in DJing in hip-hop clubs in New York in the in the mid-90s and stuff, like, of course, my stepdad's status as a, as a brilliant rock and roll musician and balladeer, like, had... Nothing to do with what I was doing, but did but, you ever
1: talk about it? Did people even know when you were in that work when you were a DJ in the nineties?
6: I I don't think so. I I don't think anybody knew, and I don't think anybody really cared. I think occasionally my stepdad would show up to like my mom and stepdad would come to these like hip hop clubs that I DJed down on Canal Street and stuff, and everyone's like, "Oh, cool, Mark's parents showed up." You know, it was kind of <laughs> sweet, like more like a novelty. But my stepdad made some. Brilliant music and was like really sampled. And at one point, one of my favorite rap groups called MOP sampled a foreigner song called Cold as Ice. So the record label called me and they were like, Hey, we know you're. Step Pops is in, you know, wrote this song and M.O.P. sampled it. Do you think you could put in a good word? And I was like, sure. And and then the next thing I know, like, my stepdad's, like, going down to the video shoot and, like, the roughest parts are, like, Brownsville and he's in the video. Like, you know, there were some nice moments where it even matched up a little bit. But the worlds weren't uh, that Together, yeah, and my stepdad at first, because I did play guitar and did play in bands before I discovered DJing, my stepdad was kind of funny when I started DJing. Because back in those days, it wasn't like everybody knew what a DJ was, and it's like, What do you mean you're on the radio? Like, I'm like, No, 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 club no, DJ, wasn't. like,
1: <laughs> you a
6: disc jockey, yeah, guy? yeah, no, I had to turn tables and I practiced scratching all day, and but and it was funny for him, he was like, Well, you know. Don't 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 give up your guitar. Like in a way that, like, if I told a regular family I was going to go play guitar, and they're like, "Well, don't you have to go back to law school?" His version of like me <laughs> becoming a DJ was like, "Yeah, well, don't don't forget to to also be a rock and roller or something." Right, so right. it was it was very interesting. And but um, then of course, you know, like I started to, you know, once I was just making a living and stuff, there was not much they could really like complain about, and they saw that I was, you know, it was something that I loved.
1: You know, um, something funny that uh, Q-Tip said in, in that documentary about you, um, referencing the time that you two worked together in the late 90s and early 2000s, that you can put on your British accent when you want and your New York accent when you want, but your hip hop to your core. And I I hear like a mix of both in your speaking voice. I'm just wondering, because you work with so many artists from so many genres, is there a certain code switching that you just naturally do when you're spending so much time with an artist?
6: I think so, because I think it goes back to probably what we were talking about, about being a producer. You're just trying to make the the artist feel at ease and as comfortable and as safe as possible. So I'm sure there's some subliminal things, right? You know, I'm that I'm going to, that's evolutionary behavior, that, you know, I used to, it used to drive me crazy how my accent used to switch in in this way that I didn't really have any control over because I moved from England when I was eight years old to New York and kids instantly like, like, why do you have that funny accent? Why do you talk that way? So I'm sure that had a lot to do with why I just started sounding American very quickly. And then I would go back to England to visit my English friends, you know, eight years old and they'd be like, Mate, why do you sound like a gank already? So, like, I was (laughs) already—I'd only lived in America for three months, and I was already just a stranger in both places. And then when I go back to England— I hear the accent come back that more. And, you know, we all think like, if you hear somebody in their voices switching, you hear them one day. And then the next day, the first thing we think is like, what is this weird inauthentic person who's like putting on these errors or whatever it is. And I would try and just sound one way, but at some point I realized it was just completely out of my control. It was a subconscious sort of like, as you say, code switching. And now I just, I, I hear it like, you know, I've, I could be talking to you if my mother called on the other line. I picked up. I'd say, "Hi, mommy." Like I just can't help it. So, <laughs> right, so I, it's right. my axe to grind, and I just now I just realize, like, okay, that just this is what it's who you are. It's gonna yeah. be who I am.
1: You're a new dad too, right? Congratulations.
6: I am. Yeah, that is the best. That really has is.
1: fatherhood brought about any revelations um, to you about your craft?
6: It just makes listening to music just so, it's just such another layer to it now because I'm just watching her, my daughter, listen to it. And the thing that she's obsessed with right now, which is a song that I never even knew, is a song from the original Bambi score called uh, April Showers. And it's something that her godmother played. And it's this beautiful sort of, you know, 1930s or 40s orchestral piece, and it's just the way she reacts to it and the way she... She loved Like, the second that it starts with this single oboe note and she just, like, literally her head will, like, swing round in the room. It's just this one single note and then nothing for three seconds and it's like... It's like a cartoon the way she reacts to it. And (laughs) I just love... Watching her and just listening, and I'm not going to try and force what I think is great and and do all, like, it's not like she's going to be indoctrinated with songs in the key of life, like, if she likes those things, great, but realizing the things that just resonate to her so far are Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles, "This April Showers from Bambi, and then... A Sesame Street song performed by James Taylor from the 70s called Jelly Man Kelly, which is just something. I appreciate these songs so much more for the mood that I see them put her in, and especially when they're saving me and my wife from like a meltdown.
1: Right, right, yep. Yeah. I am curious about your process of keeping up with the sounds of the moment. As you move through time, as you age, do you think about, is this something that you think about, your your contribution staying hot and current and fresh?
6: I think about it a lot because, you know, coming off my last album and, um, you know, I'm 47 years old, I moved from L.A. back to New York. And L.A. really is the hub and center and be all of the pop music industry. And New York is my favorite city in the world but it's it's not that same New York that it was you know all the writers and producers really the lion's share people are in LA and I made this kind of silent agreement I was just like I'm going back to New York and I'm not going to be in the thick of it anymore and I'm not going to be worried about being on everybody's record and doing these cool projects I'm just going to do things that I love and also thinking that maybe I'm gracefully hopefully gracefully bowing out of pop music like it's a you think of it as a young person's game you know, that's fine. I've had a good run. And I came back to New York, and, you know, one of the first things that came about when I was back here was working on the Barbie thing. And it's funny, like, the Dua Lipa song, Dance the Night, every time I turn on the radio, it's on, and it's a pop, you know, whatever you want to say. It's a bop. It's a banger. Like, it's something that I guess I thought, like, oh, maybe I was done, or maybe pop music was done with me. And so, um, yeah, I, I get so excited by young producers and the sound of what's happening in pop. And anytime I try to chase that, it doesn't work and it feels inauthentic. And I know right away, like, okay, this is not great. But I guess when I sort of hone into the things that that I love, like I talked about songcraft, arrangement, and those things, that's when I feel good about it.
1: Mark Ronson, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for, for joining us.
6: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much.
1: Mark Ronson is the executive producer of Barbie the album, which he wrote and produced with Andrew Wyatt. Coming up, we'll hear from former model designer and diversity advocate Bethan Hardison. This is Fresh Air Weekend.
4: Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you.
0: I could smell the smoke, I could smell the dust.
4: Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? The Embedded podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation.
1: Do you remember the first time you saw a black model on the cover of a magazine or walk down a runway? Chances are Beth Ann Hardison had something to do with it. There is no one title that encapsulates Hardison's 50-plus-year career in fashion. She entered the fashion world in the late 60s as a model, before becoming one of the first Black women to own a modeling agency. Throughout her career, she's rallied for diversity and is credited with helping to jumpstart and support the careers of models like Naomi Campbell, who calls her mom, Tyson Beckford, whom she discovered, and Iman, who considers Hardison a mentor. A new documentary chronicles Hardison's life and career. It's titled Invisible Beauty, which Hardison co-directed with documentary filmmaker Frederick Chang. Hardison has won many awards throughout her career, including the Council of Fashion Designers of America's Eleanor Lambert Founders Award in 2014 and recognition of her work championing diversity in fashion over three decades. Ann Hardison, welcome to Fresh Air.
2: Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
1: You describe yourself in the film as like the first black, black black-looking model. Can you paint a picture of what you mean? How did your look differ from the status quo at the time during your modeling days?
2: At that time, fashion models, there were girls of color. They were, you know, light skinned, brown or brown skinned girls that you know they had hair that moved. I mean, they. I hate to say it like that. And but, you
1: had a, a short fro. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. exactly.
2: I had a little natural. And the fact of it is, is that they, they were a little bit more, um, you know, more appealing to a more conservative or maybe a more commercial. But mm-hmm. then along comes this little girl named Beth Ann, who is skinny, boy like. Not being really truly androgynous, but in a way look, could be, you know, because I wasn't trying to have makeup on and have have hair pressed and all that. So I come along, and there are a few designers who were breaking the mold and liked me. I want to
1: play a clip of you talking about what it was like for you then as, as kind of the first black, black-looking model. <laughs> this is footage— um, featured in the documentary of you it was an interview from the 70s let's listen to a little bit
2: nothing uh, in the white advertising pages or the white television or the beautiful blonde girl walking down the street ever made me want to look like her or be like her because where we came from we had so much going on where did you come from brooklyn but if i came from south philly sure. if i came community just the community it may have been the black community or whatever you had your style we are fashion girls not because we're involved with the fashion business, we just are because our great Love grandmothers folks. are. Exactly. Yeah. Grandmother is, you know, if you did nothing else, you wore clothes and look good. You know, if you never had money in the bank, we never worried about getting our teeth. Look good on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> that was a clip
1: of Beth Ann Hardison speaking in the 1970s. It's featured in the new documentary about Hardison's life called Invisible Beauty. And Ann, I just love how you say where we came from, we had so much going on. We were the it girls. I mean, you were in this fashion world that was certain it was the center of the universe as far as determining beauty and trends. And here you were saying, where I'm from, we are
2: the tastemakers. I was talking about the people in the street, the people who lived in the buildings that next to me. uh, I was talking about the people of Brooklyn. And that's what we were talking about when we were speaking of that. Um, Remember... I grew up in a garment business. It wasn't so fashionable as we all talk about it like now because pop culture has made fashion like a tiny island with thousands more people on it, and the island hasn't gotten any bigger, but the inhabitants have. So for me, when I speak about this, we're talking about style, and mm-hmm. we don't need to, you know, look in the magazine to have style. We don't need to go out and buy a designer label in order to look good. And that's what It I was, was all representing. around you. It was all around right. us. And yeah. it didn't have to be fancy. It just You just had to notice a guy's cordovan shoe or a wingtip, or you noticed a man's double pleated pant and the belt he put on. You just noticed so many things, you know. And people just basically always looked nice. And if they didn't look nice, it didn't matter because they were funny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. They were entertaining. Exactly. Right. They were characters. Yeah. Your first big break was for designer Willie Smith, who created Willie Ware um, in the 80s. And he put streetwear as we know it on the map. He saw that you were an it girl. He could see that in you. Had you considered yourself a model before then?
2: Or oh, no, absolutely not. No. I. You know, look, I was, you know, a child tap dancer, and I was quite good at that and known for that. And so I liked being on the runway. I loved being on the stage so when he said it to me, it was fine, and I had already done a little bit of, you know, walking for, I think, uh, Bernie Ozer, who had, he was the head of uh, Federated Stores. Um, so he used to put on these shows for his his his, his um, buyers, and I, one day, taking the clothes over from my company, I saw what he was doing, and I really want, I love being on stage, and I just sort of said, well, you know, if you really want to have someone, good, you should hire me, and by the time I got back <laughs> to my office, my the women I worked for, who was Sylvia and, and Ruth, they were so excited for me. They were always excited for me. This is what's so interesting about growing up and watching people believe in you before you believe in yourself. And then when I told them that Willie wanted me to be, you know, work with them, I were had a full-time job. They were always so excited. They said, yes, you have to do that. Oh, he's a young, young, upcoming designer. He's great. Do it. So I would have my full-time job and I'd go off and do these little things. It was the call, but I just basically never, you know, was thinking, oh, this is something I want to do. I was just doing it for the joy of it. You tell this story in the documentary.
1: During a show, Southern buyers wouldn't even look up at you.
2: They didn't look at me. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. I don't know if they—they they just put their head down, They and they started talking, and they were, they were so— I think they were so shocked by looking at me. They had never seen anyone— in because then those shows were done in and in you know like in France also like there in that atelier you know it's right in the offices and the showrooms and it was no music or anything they had numbers you know the someone would call out the number of the, uh, the of the uh, attire and you know you walk out the first time and people are a little stunned The time you walk out there second time they're not having it they're very uncomfortable. When did you realize that this was
1: happening that they were putting their heads down? I mean, did you notice it?
2: Right they, they you 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 know, because I always I would look into, into the audience. I look at people because that's the best way I felt to to connect. And you could just see them being uncomfortable. They were just uncomfortable. I felt I felt bad for me, but I felt bad for them too. <laughs> they were so uncomfortable. And then at some point, you know, by the second an outfit, you know, Jessica could see that I was really, you know, like I, I didn't think I, I just wanted to go to the bathroom and never come out. It was just so—and I never thought it was—people say that to me. Did you—oh, you, they think when I tell the story that it that it was because I was black. I didn't think it was because I was black. I thought it was because mm. because I knew other, there were other models of color, you know. Like I said, once again, the conservative, nice-looking girls. I thought it was because I just was so odd-looking to them. Mm. And I was someone who just came along that just didn't look like what everybody else looked like at that time. So I just seemed a little— you know, there's something that was just hard for them to just grasp what was coming out there. I didn't want to go back out for the third one, and I think Chester felt that he came to me, as he was so busy with everything else, and he just started telling me how beautiful I was, and and how you know just you know I, he just kept encouraging me because I had to go back out there, you know, I had to show the outfit. Uh, that was an experience that I always always remembered. You'd envision yourself as a samurai when you were
1: walking the runway. And I I love this, because what did did a samurai kind of signify
2: for you? Oh, yeah, no, samurai, yeah. It was was really uh, Toshiro Mifune. You know, he was, for me, you know, I grew up with Japanese uh, cinema. And, uh, yeah, Toshiro Mifune was a wonderful actor, and he played in all those films. And it was just the way he moved through everything. And uh, it gave me the sense of, like, warrior sense and also purpose of uh, a lack of defeat. It was just a, a way of, you're not trying to cause trouble, but if if trouble comes, you're able to defend yourself. So whatever I did on that stage at the time, I always kept him in close in my head. And so the movement, when I say, like there was one moment in the film it shows where I'm just strutting, you know, just strutting through a moment. And that was because there was a moment that he could walk with such pride, but mm-hmm. also ability to be able to defy. And I think that's what I would think no matter what I was doing. Did you enjoy modeling? Oh, absolutely. Look, I'm a child tap dancer. I love, look, I ran track, <laughs> anything. <laughs> put me on the stage, put me in front of people and tell me to go. Yeah, man. No, <laughs> I, I, yeah, of course. And But remember, I was a runway model. I wasn't a print girl. So Runway is, is wonderful. It's a the, it's the roar of the crowd out there. You know, you, you get out there and do you, and you, you get all that, you know, appreciation, immediate appreciation, especially back then.
1: I want to talk with you for a moment about your childhood. You were raised in Brooklyn with your grandmother and your mother before moving with your father. Before I ask you about the experiences with your, with your family, you were in a gang from the time you were nine until you were 12. And I think we have thoughts about what a gang is, Is but like what was this gang that you were a part of and what kinds of stuff did you all do?
2: It was um, the chaplains and I was part of the lady chaplains and the chaplains was a five borough gang that, you know, had, um, you know, had a, I guess that's what you say, um, mainstay in each one of the boroughs and they were known. And so what did we do? You know, it's more like silly stuff like you can't go in the wrong neighborhood, you get beat up. You know, those are things that happened back then with those gangs. It's not like the gangs today that just kill people. I mean, even when we had a gun, it was like a a zip gun, you know, something that somebody put a barrel and found the wood and they made something. Did you you have one? I never had one. No, 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 no. But I did get, you know— One was put in front of my face on the street of my block, my God, and these kids came in and they invaded our our neighborhood, and we had to stand up to them. Um, And they were the Stompers, and they were a crazy gang. They were really bad. We were good compared to them. And I you know chose to be the war counselor. this is so crazy this shows you how young people are and the war council is someone who protects their the, the, you know their people and they'll stand up in front of and take the first hit if they have to they're the ones and this gang comes into the streets and this is crazy my mother's at work. I'm out, you know, doing my thing in the afternoon. Uh, and there they are. They are coming and they're beating each other up. We're fighting. And I go up, and I walk in front of them, and I say, you know, shoot me, not my people, that kind of stupid thing that kids can do. You're just silly. You know, <laughs> with the things we used to do, jumping in the train tracks and running down the train tracks, hanging on the back of the trolleys and buses, I mean, things that people do that, ah, oh, it's dangerous stuff, but, you know, you can do it when you're a kid because, you have less fear, so in this case, you know you just stand there and you don't think anything's going to really happen. And this guy pulls out this zip gun. A zip gun is a part of a barrel of a real gun and maybe some wood and it's bandaged together and all. And he put it in my face, and I just had no thought that it could work, that he could, that I would go anywhere, that I would die. I don't know why, but it didn't work because it it, it didn't. The gun didn't work. But Lord knows, the you know in the neighborhood, they saw me. Everybody right. in the box. You know, you don't get away with nothing back in the day because your parents are the entire neighborhood. So, you know, yeah, once my mother learned this stuff that I was doing, she was like, what are you thinking? Yeah. But I, I you know, I continued on gently until I got to my father's at 12. But he was very cool. He, he just felt like, I guess he must have been wise enough to think, you know, less says best and it will go away. And it did. Well, you went to live with your father when you were 12, and you call
1: your father an intellectual. And his main goal with you was to raise your consciousness. What did that look like?
2: It was different. My father was an imam, you know, so he was a religious leader of the Muslims, um, Islamic leader. Um, he was an orthodox uh, Sunni Muslim, not not Elijah Muhammad Muslims. Um, Food of Islam, not that. He was influential with that, you know, because he knew Elijah and he also knew Malcolm. Malcolm X. They would come to your house sometimes. Malcolm has come to the house uh, twice that I saw um, to have some counsel with my father. But he was that guy. He he was, you know, he knew he had to take me. His responsibility was before I turned 13 and just to, to be able to put things into my to my mind, that normally he knew my mother and my grandmother couldn't. They were, you know, good people, and he. that's why I stayed with them so long. But he had many things to teach me, and everything from reading, writing, learning about politics, and, you, know, you know, using, how to use your power to, to do things, to change things. Some people say to me when they see that, know that, did you think your father had an influence on you that made you the person that you are? Well, I'm, I may have his DNA, yes, but I don't. I never think of it that way. I don't realize it that way. But he, you know, he had me send, you know, uh, when, when the Suez Canal was a, a big problem, uh, you know, he'd have me send uh, telegrams to the John Foster Dulles at the time, and hmm. you know, he, he was a politician who basically oversaw, you know, the Suez Car- Canal crisis and all the Middle East things. And you know, I learned so much from my dad. When you think about things that he was so forward, like, you know, even from juicing. I mean, people said, you juice back then? Yeah. My father was very much that guy. He was always interested in doing better or learning more and doing that. He was he was a great uh, leader, too, because people had a like, great deal of respect for him. A lot of musicians who had turned Muslim would come to see him, and I got to see a lot of that. So he... It was a stricter environment, yes, for sure. And my stepmother was really, uh, you know, she was a real pain because she resented my mother, so she took it out on me. I liked her in a lot of ways because I got to learn what a great woman is behind a man, and I saw that. In this work to increase representation, though,
1: I mean, you've been at this a long time. So you've seen that there's this desire for black and brown models that comes in waves. It's almost like a trend in itself. How do you contend with the up and down of it? Because this is more expansive than even the modeling industry. We see diversity initiatives more broadly come in waves. Some people feel like we're at a wave now where we may be reverting back.
2: I I don't think we're reverting back on the visual uh, of the fashion model. I think you're reverting back since the Black Lives Matter movement happened and it affected corporations and fashion and and music and film. You know, it made everyone feel like, oh, yes, you know, because it wasn't a black movement. It was an integrated movement. It was white kids out there, a lot of white kids out there trying to make a difference and, God, we're not going to stand for this and this is wrong, and they're right. So it's really actually, at this given point, As far as the fashion model, she's well covered. I mean, she and he of color, they're in it. You could see from the advertising, from editorials, from fashion shows, they are in. Finally, the industry has embraced the girls and boys of color. Do I ever sometimes think that that can revert back? Yeah, I keep my foot on the clutch a little bit. But I don't worry about it as much as before. What is changing is the corporate situation behind the scenes where they were really being very giving and all the money and and let's help this. Now that's pulling back. Now why is it pulling back? Well, you know, everything comes down to money. If you can generate it, you will last in it. If you're smart enough, especially in my industry, talking about design and all, if you're smart enough to be able to, to be able to know how to manipulate the world that you go into, which is in retail and wholesale, if you can get through that, because it's a tough business. No matter if you're black, white, Asian, Latin, it's a tough business. So that's going to be a difficulty for people. But in the end of the day, I do think it is changing because corporately, you know, look how many DEI executives have been let go recently. Yeah. Yeah. Beth Ann Hardison, this has truly been
1: a pleasure. Thank you so much for this conversation. It means a lot for me to have been here. Beth Ann Hardison is a former model, activist, and co-director of the new documentary about her life and career called Invisible Beauty. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with help from Adam Stanishevsky. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley.
0: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on.